Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. you very much um, and thank you all for coming and 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 being with me I've got a presentation and I'd, I'd like to offer it um, to all of you and then I'd love to have conversation uh, about it uh, I want to thank Bill for the invitation to offer you thoughts on renewing the work of reconciliation I have to admit it's a topic that I'm very interested in and I really looking forward to your thoughts and questions about this afterwards. And I am honored that I'm going to get to spend some time also interacting with um, Michael Battle and John Whitcomb. I look forward to meeting you, John. So my reflections had led me to the conclusion that reconciliation can only happen it can only be arrived at if we first travel through the work of forgiveness and repair or reparation. I vividly remember as a child, a seventh grader, stating what I thought was an obvious fact about a popular eighth grader. She was fat and I was quite clear that I could outrun her. What I thought was an accurate description of her abilities was in fact, a derogatory statement about her body size that would hurt her feelings despite her popularity. When the seventh and eighth graders who witnessed my comments saw an opportunity to create drama and chaos and from the oohs and the ahs that reverberated in the crowd, I knew that my words would quickly find their way to the eighth grader I had insulted. I sat by myself on the bus on the way home that afternoon. And I knew that I had said something wrong that would hurt her feelings and shred my already precarious social position, being new to the school. I didn't eat much dinner that night and I couldn't figure out what to do. All I knew is that I wanted the pain and the shame and the embarrassment of my actions to go away and instead, I wound up reliving my words all night long. And in the morning, holding my long-haired miniature dachshund, Duchess, who was pretty much my only friend, it came to me, the only thing I could do was apologize. And I would march myself into her homeroom as soon as I got to school, find her and say I was sorry. And that is what I did with a whole crowd of people watching, many waiting to see if there would be some sort of junior high girl fight. <laughs> and I walked up to Jane who was talking with a group of people and they saw me walk in and immediately stepped aside. And I said, Jane, yesterday I said that you were fat and that wasn't nice and I'm really sorry. And she looked at me with disdain and hurt and nodded. She turned around and I walked away. Did she forgive me? I have no idea. We never spoke again and we certainly never reconciled. The work of reconciliation 
It's neither easy, simple, or straightforward. It is complex, multifaceted, frequently slow, and always dependent upon both the offending party and the aggrieved party participating. And in my reflections and reading, I've arrived at several steps that seem necessary for reconciliation. And unfortunately, these steps are often conflated or rushed. Reconciliation between individuals or groups can be arrived at if at least the following actions take place. The rent in the relationship, the tear or severing in the fabric of the connection must be acknowledged by both the perpetrator and the recipient, the offending party and the person or group who has been hurt. The sin needs to be accurately named. The offending person or parties need to own their complicity and agency in the sin. The person or group who has been wronged chooses to forgive the person or people who committed the sin. The offending person or group commit to repairing or creating a new relationship, making amends or reparations. The wronged party must be asked what they believe would be an appropriate action or set of actions to create trust. The wronged party understands the vulnerability they're embracing by entering into this process. And the offending party shows humility and contrition. And then with the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible for the true reconciliation, for, true, for the work of true reconciliation to be experienced by all people involved and even bystanders who bear witness to the process. So let's look at this process in some detail. An event takes place or an action happens that disrupts a relationship or causes harm to a person or a group of people. That event, that misdeed, that sin needs to be named and acknowledged by the person or people who committed the sin or benefited from the sin, as well as by the person or people whose lives were negatively affected by the perpetrator's actions. Put simply, when someone screws up in order for any hope of reconciliation to happen, the person who screwed up and the person who's affected each needs to acknowledge the incident. We cannot fix what we cannot see. If real pain has happened, then the offending party cannot simply brush it aside or quickly patch it up. That's akin to sewing a new piece of unshrunk cloth on old clothes and then being surprised when the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and makes a worse tear. Mark chapter two. Too often we see small affronts grow when they are not initially named and addressed. And if the journey towards reconciliation is going to begin after the sin or disrupting event is named, the perpetrator and anyone who has benefited from this action needs to own their complicity in the activity. Forgiveness, however, can happen even if the perpetrator never acknowledges the sin or says that they are sorry. And I have to say my understanding of forgiveness and much of what I'll say now is greatly influenced by this amazing book, Amish Grace, when forgiveness transcends tragedy. And it was written by Donald Craybill, Stephen Nolt, and David Weaver Zerker. And you'll remember, John, you may not know this being in the UK, but those of us should remember 
the incident that these folks write about. On October 2nd in 2006, a gunman entered an Amish school in Nickel Mines, Lancaster, PA, and shot and killed five children and critically wounded five others, all under the age of 13. Remember? You might remember the media's confusion as reports went out that the relatives of the Amish children who were shot were bringing food to the family of the assailant. And over half of the people who attended the assailant's funeral were Amish. And the book Amish Grace details the events of the day and the theological and spiritual roots of forgiveness in the Amish culture. They're Anabaptists from way back. And I found it to be enormously helpful in wrestling with exactly what it means to follow Christ's mandate that we forgive 70 times seven. In Matthew's gospel chapter 18, the authors of the book point out that the Amish differentiate forgiveness, pardon, and reconciliation. Forgiveness, pardon, and reconciliation. In forgiveness, the victim foregoes the right to vengeance. If I forgive you, I give up my need or desire for revenge. In pardon, the offender is released from punishment altogether. And if I pardon you, I will actively seek from the ruling bodies to have you released from all punishment. Whereas reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship or the creation of a new relationship between the victor and the offender. When I reconcile with you, both of us are creating a new relationship in spite of the breach. The Amish are clear reconciliation is not necessary for forgiveness to take place. Reconciliation does not always happen because it requires the establishment of trust between two willing parties. And I have found that differentiating between forgiveness and reconciliation to be incredibly important. I can forgive you and you can forgive me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you and I will continue on in a relationship of sorts. We might, and that may be in fact possible and even our ultimate goal, but it is not assumed in that first step of forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean the resumption of trust, nor does it mean we put ourselves back into a possible position of harm. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. And another piece of information about forgiveness. It's not ours to make someone else do. As the Amish parents said of their children who were in the schoolhouse on that ill-fated morning, we can tell them what forgiveness is. We can offer forgiveness to the assailant's family, but we cannot make them forgive anyone. Just because it's so important. Let's dive in a bit more to the process of forgiveness. When should we forgive? The Amish say quickly, why should we forgive? Drawing on centuries of their practical theology and scripture, the Amish say, we forgive so that God may forgive us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, Luke 11. And they say for extremely practical reasons, as Gid, these uh, Amish ministers, last name says, if I hold a grudge for a day, it is bad. If I hold a grudge for two days, it is worse. If I hold a grudge for a year, then that man, who's offended me is controlling my life. So why not just let go of the grudge now? Otherwise, says Gid, you live with the grudge forever and it controls you. But you like me might be asking the question, how? How can they forgive? And this is where I found the work. A social scientist re recently 
retired psychology professor Everett Worthington of Virginia Commonwealth University. His work's so very helpful. Worthington describes two types of forgiveness, decisional and emotional. Decisional forgiveness, he says, is a personal commitment to control negative behavior, even if the negative emotions continue. A person practicing decisional forgiveness, writes Worthington, promises not to act in revenge or avoidance, but it doesn't necessarily make a person feel less unforgiving or more forgiving. Emotional forgiveness, says Worthington, happens when negative emotions, the resentment, hostility, even the hatred, are replaced by positive feelings. An Amish grandfather of two of the slain little ones, when asked if he had forgiven, said, yes, in my heart. And said the minister, Gid, that family will have to struggle with forgiveness, with the forgiveness issue for a long time, forgiving again and again and accepting the loss of those children again and again. Regardless of how many times we forgive, forgiveness needs to be practiced again and again. Hi, I came to think of forgiveness as a muscle that we can train and build just like an actual muscle that has fast twitch, powerful muscle fibers that twitch quickly and provide short bursts of power and strength. And there are also slow twitch fibers, which which take a while to contract. And these are the muscle fire fibers needed for endurance. And forgiveness, I think, is made up of both of these metaphorical muscle fibers. The fast twitch muscle fibers are the ones we activate when we make the move towards decisional forgiveness. And the slow twitch muscle fibers are the ones we use when we possibly make our way toward emotional forgiveness. Forgiveness then, is a short-term act and a long-term process, and the two are connected. And this, this, this last bit on forgiveness. Fred Luskin, who's the director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project, writes that forgiveness means becoming the hero instead of a victim in the story you tell of your life. I like that. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need a bit of rewarding for being my best self. Letting go of wrongs that happen to me can sometimes be difficult. So it makes it more palatable for me to say, when I forgive, I become the hero rather than the victim. When there is power in that, power that begins to approach God's amazing grace. So then how do we move from forgiveness to reconciliation? As we know from our own life experiences and the Amish make clear, forgiveness does not lead to reconciliation. Frequently, however, culture and pop theology presume that faithful people should always be reconciled, which is simply not true. Jumping from forgiveness to reconciliation skips the essential step of making appropriate amends so that trust may be built and a new relationship may be forged. And so often in the United States, when groups discuss race relations, white people quickly jump to reconciliation, completely bypassing the essential step of making amends with people of color for a system in our country which for centuries has perpetuated preferential treatment for people who are white. 
And if you now perhaps find yourself less excited by this portion of my presentation and more skeptical of my observations, I invite you to read Ta-Nehisi Coates' article in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations. And I'll not try to summarize his article for I'll not do it justice. But what I can say is that as I read it, a growing sense of dis-ease and nausea enveloped me. And I said to myself, oh, now I know why I put off reading this for so long. I cannot unsee or unknow what I now know. My years of ignorance can no longer shelter, shelter me from the shadows of our country's reality. And if we are ever to have racial reconciliation in our country, we must do what is spiritually needed and take the step of making amends and right four centuries of wrongs. Reparations are the only way forward if we are to honor Jesus's commandment. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 38. No person who is white would want to endure the daily indignities for which people of color must always be on guard, even now in 2021. Making amends, righting a wrong, making reparations are not a leftist intellectual scheme or a black nationalist gimmick. Rather, they are essential, theological, and a spiritual practice for anyone longing to do the work of reconciliation. In the book of Genesis, we have a grave rupture between Jacob and Esau. Jacob, having tricked and cheated his older brother out of his birthright and his father's final blessing, has an opportunity to come back to his brother, maybe even to be reconciled. But Jacob does not approach his brother, you may remember, with just a hope and a prayer. Instead, he sends before him 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 nursing camels, 40 cows. You get the idea. The list just goes on and on. Making reparations before considering reconciliation. It's Genesis 32. In the book of Isaiah, we see a corporate rupture and repair between God and the people of Judah. They lament and long for God to hear them and answer their prayers. And they cry out in the 58th chapter, why do we fast and you don't see? Why afflict ourselves and you don't seem to notice? But the prophet replies, yet on your fast day, you do whatever you want and oppress your workers, you quarrel and you brawl and then you fast. He says, if you remove the yoke from among you, the finger pointing, if you open your heart to the hungry and provide abundantly for those who are afflicted, then your light will shine and your ancient ruins will be rebuilt and you shall be called the repairers of the breach and the restorer of the streets to live in. The prophet tells the people of Judah, if you change your ways, if you make reparation, if you lift the yoke of oppression, if you feed the hungry and provide abundantly for the afflicted, then your light will shine. You will be the repairer of the breach and the storer of the streets to live in. Isaiah 58, after the people make amends, reconciliation with Yahweh will take place. In scripture, 
both personally and corporately, reparations, the making of amends, precedes reconciliation. And even with Peter and the risen Christ, repair and making amends precede reconciliation. After Peter has denied Jesus three times, after Jesus has died, and now the risen Christ stands before Peter on that beach, he says, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Simon Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he replies, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And he asked the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was sad that he asked a third time, do you love me? And he replied, Lord, you know everything, you know, I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. John 21, and they were reconciled. Friends, the work of reconciliation is the spiritual culmination of naming a sin, owning a sin, forgiving a sin, and finally making amends for a sin. It is long, long work, hard work, fraught work, and the work that Christ has called us to do. And may we journey and learn together, moving ever closer to God's hope for our world. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop. That was amazing. And I just want to let you all know, because this was um, uh, such a wonderful paper that she gave to us, we're going to provide you with that text as well as a video recording of this. So if any of you want to take some time to review it, also pick up on some of the names that were uh, uh, mentioned and do some research on your own. And um, it, 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 this is this, please know that we'll have that all available for you. Uh, Bishop, thank you so much for that wonderful, wonderful, uh, thoughtful and careful uh, and, and, and deep, deeply spiritual and deeply, deeply theological discussion of reconciliation. Uh, let's turn to, um, to, to, Dr. Battle, and then we'll go to Dean Whitcomb. Um, I, I join in Bill's praise for Bishop Bonnie's um, magnificent work here. Just a few comments um, and basically some questions um, so that I can just turn things over to John. I, I wanna go back to Bishop Bonnie's sermon um, when she's talking about what I see really as the insight that um, there's mutuality between Jesus and Peter. I mean, the chutzpah of Peter rebuking Jesus and then Jesus rebuking Peter. Um, I've always seen that as um, God's work through the incarnation to make human beings mutual with God, which is supposed to be impossible. And so that takes me to um, the, the wonderful things that I've learned from Bishop Bonnie, and that is how there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Oftentimes we see them as the same thing, but reconciliation actually has five rites of passage 
um, starting with contrition, confession, forgiveness, repentance, and reunion. The Desert Fathers and Mothers taught us that reconciliation has five rites of pa passage. And Bishop Bonnie is reminding us of the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, which I'm appreciative for. And, I, and please put me on the list to receive her paper. Uh, my question is, and this really is going back to um, the wonderful sessions we're having on Wednesday for Christchurch Cranbrook and um, Temple Bethel. And it's the concept of forgiveness. And this is what I learned from Jacques Derrida. That, and interestingly enough, he's not necessarily an avowed Christian. Um, he says that the object of the term concept, way we understand forgiveness, the object always has to be sin. And so for us as Christians, oftentimes, we don't really recognize that. And we think we can go around and forgive sin. Um, and Derrida, this philosopher says, teaches us, I think as Christians, only God can forgive sins. If you look at that, you can see it in scripture. Um, you can see it um, basically in the text around our gospel today, that they were trying to kill Jesus because he was going around forgiving sins and those who were in that society understood that as jesus trying to become or claiming to be god as christians we we do believe um, jesus is god so i understand that jesus can forgive sins and i asked this question just to um open us up to what bishop bonnie's teaching us and going back to her sermon as well, um, how, how do we participate in this mutuality with God, which was impossible really, according to early theologians? Um, how do we forgive? How do we do something that only God can do? So I'll end there, so we have enough time. And you know, I think Bishop, because that was such a thoughtful question, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond just because I want to give you a chance to interact with it before I turn to Dean Whitcomb, because I have a suspicion that Dean Whitcomb is going to ask a similarly thoughtful question. And so I, I hope this is right, but this is just my, I'm well, just flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah, so we'll see. Thank you, Michael. Um, I think we can, what, what, what's coming to me is the image of, of an icon. Um, it's not the holy, but it points us towards the holy. Can we forgive sins? No, I think that we can point in that direction. Um, and I think that's what we're all called to do is to continually move in that direction and with faith that God will do what God does. That's beautiful. And I think what I'll do um, is now turn to Dean Whitcomb and ask him to offer his response. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much indeed, Bill. Thank you, Bishop. So it's so, um, and hello. And, hi, um, hi. 
right. Sorry for, for being invisible up to this point. Um, I'm actually on a on a weekend off, Bishop, so I've joined for this. So I'm not, um, you know, attired, um, but it's really nice to meet you. And um, thank you so much for the presentation, which was fabulous and so full of energy. And uh, and uh, um, yeah, so it'd be lovely to, to encounter you in person someday and to welcome you here. So oh, thank you. Thank I you so much. Um, so um, one or two things. I mean, I think like uh, like Michael, I really appreciated um, that teasing out of the relationship of reconciliation and forgiveness. Um, and actually, just to go to that last point first, um, and uh, and how we participate in God's movement for forgiveness and reconciliation, I think that's so important and really fundamental and speaks. Uh, I, I haven't really engaged with all the things coming up in chat and you probably won't have seen those, but one of them was how do you relate forgiveness of self to forgive or reconciliation with self to reconciliation with others? And, and that seemed to me to be um, kind of bound up with that because um, I, it seems to me hugely important that all we do is somehow step into that universal reconciliation, which I feel that God has won for us in Christ, um, that, that opens up all sorts of other questions about, um, to put it bluntly, universalism and, and sort of, and, and all of that sort of thing. Is it possible for people to exclude themselves from God's universal work of reconciliation? Or does God choose to exclude some people? I feel that actually it's quite difficult to be deeply involved in the work of reconciliation unless you have a significantly liberal theology. But there are, of course, other people who would fundamentally disagree with that. So that in itself is a whole, you know, kind of a whole thesis. Um, so um, anything more on that I would be interested in. Um, uh, I think just a couple of other things. You're right. I didn't, I, I'm, and I kind of scribbled down a thing about Amish grace and I didn't remember that specific incident. So I would be really, I'll, you know, I'll go back and, um, and, and do a bit of work on that. I think that will be really, um, really interesting. I love your thing about forgiveness as a muscle. And, and actually, uh, I just think that's such a good image. And oddly enough, ju literally just in, the, I think a week ago, I'd never heard anybody talk about spiritual muscles. And it seems to be the expression of the moment. And I've heard, I've heard this two or three times, literally in the last week, but never about forgiveness specifically. And I think that's an incredibly useful image. And, and they, the, the sense of kind of exercising it and honing it and strengthening it. Um, and to link that to the, in the way that you did about the ongoing need for forgiveness, for example, in the Amish community, because just at the moment that they feel they've actually forgiven this, then blow me down, you know, something happens. Um, uh, I um, found myself speaking on Ash Wednesday um, uh, about a thorn that I'd got in my thumb in mid-December. Mm. And all over Christmas, my thumb was infected and I was taking various things. I took antibiotics and um, and uh, and it was just it was wearisome for me and my family who had to put up with me uh, talking about it. And then it kind of went away. And then about a week ago, this piece of thorn emerged on the surface of the thumb. And it was just a classic example, really, of the sort of business about revisiting things because it had continued to be sore and sensitive for, for, for reasons that I, um, that I didn't fully understand until that finally, finally rose to the surface. Um, 
And so I, I just want to uh, uh, end with, with one other question, kind of observation come question. Um, and in some of the things that you talked about, um, you were talking about the process of reconciliation, essentially many of them, including the one that you started with, was reconciliation, which is launched by the perpetrator. Um, and, but then the Amish, of course, was the story of reconciliation launched by the victim. And uh, I think from Coventry, we're quite aware that, in a, that our own personal story is a story of reconciliation launched by the victim, but several of our international partners, many of them actually, are, are drawn from people who are perpetrators seeking to be act, actors in reconciliation. I think I became really aware of this, become really aware of this recently in our working with people in the Anglican churches in Canada and, and, and New Zealand actually, both talking about the kind of the damages of colonialism and how they can address those. So I didn't know if there was anything, you've, you've got this wonderful ability to systematize. Um, and I wondered if you, would, if you would be able to draw a distinction between the process towards reconciliation, starting with the perpetrator as distinct from the process towards reconciliation started by the victim. I'm so sorry, that's probably a really huge, mean question to end with. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I mean, that, that's fabulous, John. I mean, I, I mostly want to touch talk about slow twitch and fast twitch muscles because... Okay, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's such yeah. a great image. Right, once upon a time, my parents paid for a biology degree and then they're like, you're going to do what? You're going to be oh. what? And and then in, in my spare time and, and why I go to the UK, last year was the first time I hadn't been in the UK in 15 years, is because I'm the, a sea kayaker and I have British kayaking wow. credentials. And so I'm continually thinking about training and those processes. So, but that's, that's, that's another world. Um, I love, I was so excited about this invitation because it made, it made me think about these, these pieces and the notion, and I hadn't thought about it coming from the perpetrator and the, as opposed to coming from the victim. And there are, there are differences. I think I mean, the one thing that needs to have each, the problem, the, the sin, the fracture has to be named. Each has to name it, right? Um, and then I, I get if I, and I, I said a tiny bit about this, but I think if I think about uh, like how, how you present yourself, I think the perpetrator needs to present with contrition, and humility, and the the victim or the person who has survived this or received it needs to be able to to be vulnerable. And and my and that that is such a bigger jump of grace because everything because because wretchedness has already happened, right? And and so, um, and so I think that um, that that ability it, it has to be has to be something of a gift, because what we're very clear about, right, 
is that you do not, right? I think about, if I think about domestic abuse, right? You do not want to stay and be in a place of position of harm. And what I think about John in our country, when we keep, when white people keep wrestling with this notion of systemic racism um, and, 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 and people of color come to the table and God, the number of times I have been continued to say stupid, hurtful things. And then said, but I didn't mean it. It's like, who cares? Um, and so that, that grace that a, a victim, or shall we say a hero, um, comes with is massive. Uh, and, and I think, um, and I think really shows, and that you can have that transformation. And I saw in the chat, I saw people talking about there's a difference between individual rec reconciliation and corporate reconciliation. And, and Michael, I know you could talk about this at, I'm sure at great length, but if we think about the individual confessions and reconciliation in South Africa, in the Truth and Reconciliation um, Committee, I wonder if those individual acts of people coming in and naming their sins and that being, you know, forgiven for, I wonder if that multiplied, 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 enabled that country, not perfect, not perfect, not perfect, but enabled that country to make the transition um, without, as people thought, a bloodbath. And, and I guess I wonder if it is that bit by bit by bit that, that the fibers, as it were, friends, build into a muscle. That, that's really helpful, Bishop. And I, I would like to, we will go through all of the questions because so many of them are so amazing. And uh, maybe we can begin with that. That was asked by Troy Dostert, who, and, and I just to give you some background, uh, the people who are asking these questions are psychologists, um, scholars of the civil rights movement, um, just extraordinary questions that we're receiving. Um, and, and the first is Troy Dostert, who's taught uh, civil rights at Cranbrook for years. And his question is exactly that, to speak a little bit about the movement from um, you know, interpersonal grievances to societal grievances. Yeah. And just to give a little bit of context to what you just said, um, there was some um, so, uh, political scientist did some careful uh, surveys of South African society in 2005, after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And his name is, uh, I, believe, I believe his last name is Gibson. And, and his finding was that um, actually having those uh, televised uh, acknowledgements of fault by, by, by both the, 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 the white community and the, and the um, instruments of the apartheid government, as well as um, the African community and those who had been engaged in some of the uh, internecine warfare that happened, which there was a lot, um, uh, that actually created a sense of moral equivalence is what he found, that they actually saw that they were, um, that these were whole people uh, with flaws and it, and it kind of eroded uh, the sense of moral purity that each um, each side started with, uh, because initially each side, because they had their narratives, they believed they were doing God's work, and and the, we forget that the apartheid government 
was a Christian government, an avowedly Christian government. And so each of them had this sense of moral purity, even though from the standpoint of now, you know, many years, it's hard to see that. And in that, that those acknowledgments actually made them um, whole people, not, 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 and so it, it is a, it's an interesting thing. And, and can you say more? And I, I, this is a huge question that Troy is asking and I invite uh, Michael and, and John to jump in as well, is how do we move from these interpersonal moments to societal moments? And, and I begin again with you, Bishop. Yeah, well, I mean, I do think, I mean, I'm really trying to figure out how to map this out. I don't think we've been that good at it, right? Um, and, but I, I do think it is about building, um, building those stories one atop the other. And perhaps it is some sort of societal commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that does get set up. And that then it begins to, the narrative is continually heard and then the, um, the, the, the balance may be tipped. Um, I have to think a lot more about that. And I, I don't, um, so I don't, I'm not happy with that answer. It's the best I've got right now. I'd love to hear what Michael and John have to say and other folks. Um, sure. I, I, my crack at, at it will be, um, pretty pedantic and academic. Um, and it's this, that, um, uh, since the European Enlightenment and Western culture or the global north, however you want to describe our world of controlling resources, um, mostly our worldview is individualistic. And we start with the individual and then we move to the community. Um, and the global south and those cultures that are not recipients, um, although you can't really escape the European Enlightenment, um, but most cultures that that are not considered Western start with the community and yeah. then move to the individual. Uh, um, yeah, and so I, I think I think Bill, in terms of responding to the question, um, it's all the the movement's already there. It's in the water we drink. We've all drunk the Kool Aid. Um, and so the, the the issues, I think, going back to uh, Bishop Bonnie's wisdom, the issues are to be aware that we drank the Kool-Aid and to to see how we are all affected and how we are brainwashed in some senses to see how to see the other. You know, if we're in an individualistic society, forgiveness is really unintelligible because all that matters is me. I mean, there's no other. So why, why even think about things like reconciliation or forgiveness? But in communal societies, that's it. That's the, that's the gravity that holds things together is how do I interact with the other? Um, there are dysfunctions in that. Um, we can get into that. But I, I think that's sort of the academic answer to, you know, how is it that we um, move from those sort of interpersonal to communal or societal? And societal to the individual. It's it's something that we anthropologists are really the best at showing us how to do that. Nice. That's beautiful. John. Yeah, I mean, it it is it is really challenging. I think I found myself going 
uh, in a, to a couple of different places. So one is, uh, I mean, I think that um, Bishop Bonnie probably said this about it's the way that stories are told. Stories are the stories are the key to it all. Um, and in Coventry, we have this title for the city of the city of peace and reconciliation, um, which gives us a kind of a go-to place for the way that we tell stories about ourselves as a city. And I think that's really significant. Uh, that in itself, of course, doesn't really, doesn't quite work um, just as a thing. Um, and uh, I guess then my second, the second place that I went to is the way that in this country we've responded to the Black Lives Matter movement. So that was, um, the the dreadful some of the dreadful things that actually came across in the news from the states and in particular the death of George Floyd was a kind of pressed a huge restart thing here um, which has just rippled across the whole of society in this extraordinary way and so it's produced something which has put energy for a restart in and so there are quite a lot of people who are wanting not to let that go to waste. So for people that are interested in that, there's a, um, uh, in Coventry where we're involved in uh, the city of culture, there's a local arts organization in, in Birmingham that has produced a pledge called the More Than A Moment Pledge, which is all about trying to, to get uh, just recognition and opportunity for black artists, very specifically, black artists, partly on the basis that actually if you try and uh, address everything, you end up addressing nothing. So it's very specific to that. Um, in the world of cathedrals, um, here's a shocking statistic. There are 44 English cathedrals. Um, in those 44 cathedrals, there are literally two clergy of color. Uh, and in fact, they're both in, the, they're both in Manchester, the Dean and one of the canons in Manchester. And I happen to be on one of the national committees that looks at ministry in, in cathedrals and other places. And so I'm heading up a group which is trying to see that shift. And it's trying to put in some interventions that take the opportunity of this extraordinarily shocking uh, news that was, that was kind of gripping us in the middle of last year and not lose that opportunity. So, um, so everywhere you go, there is imagination about things being different and that's quite different from a few years ago where there was a lot of guilt and that phrase political correctness so there's a lot of guilt around but now there's a lot of imagination that things actually could be different and so a lot of energy going into that so that's yeah thank you that was wonderful john i think we're going to go to another question and we're going to keep it in the dostert family just for now folks i know that so many of you are brilliant but so is pastor manisha and this is her question who measures the acts of contrition with regard to reparations? Who determines when it is enough or not? Is there something about forgiveness that affects that accounting? Does forgiveness maybe come before reparations? A lot of questions, she says, because it was such a provocative essay. So I, let me, I'll take a, a quick swing at this, um, Manisha. I, I think that um, and, and this I get, uh, wisdom is from um, Archbishop um, Tutu. Um, he, when talking about reparations, um, he, he was very clear, at least in this piece I read, that, that the person who was aggrieved needed to be involved and in some ways determined 
because otherwise then you just you just um heighten the wrong again um that you you just inflict another wrong by saying well this should be good enough is that not good enough what's going to be good enough um so so he that's what that's what um i've seen um bishop tutu say so and so my sense is is that somehow the aggrieved party has to be involved in that and um i don't know who determines when it is enough um i don't know how much grace can someone have mm. um and and i think I think that forgiveness does come before reparations, because I think there needs to be a vulnerability of of, of putting something together because it, it's you are then trying, I think, because I think forgiveness, when I ask for forgiveness or when someone gives it, it doesn't mean that we're going to continue on. And I think the notion of reparation means that we are trying to repair something, recreate something so that we might be reconciled. So I do think that forgiveness comes before um, before reparations. Um, and is there something about forgiveness that affects that accounting? Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to lob up grace, um, and then um, and, and leave it at at that. Um, we we've got some beautiful uh, we've got some beautiful questions emerging. I'm going to continue to move back a little bit, folks. Uh, to uh, Amy Graham, who's a psychologist, um, asked this question: Can you talk a little bit more about the differences and reconciliations with other? Uh, versus reconciliation with the self mm. and then i'm gonna and if that um uh, as just wow. to my other uh interlocutors we're so grateful to have you all i'm gonna can if, if you i'm gonna keep i'm gonna lob it to you occasionally but i want to try to get surface as many of these questions as possible amy i love that i i, I love that question um i wonder and i'm just going to speak out of my own experience um when I was 16, I went on a, some of you have heard me talk about this, but I went on a kid's cursia. I went on a retreat. Um, and in the course of that retreat, I had this profound spiritual moment, which I'm still a little bitter that I peaked spiritually at 16. But, um, but I had this moment where um, I had a sense of being profoundly, completely and utterly loved by God for who I was as I was. Um, and that, and, and I, up to that point, had been afraid of God. And, and then that profound washing over me of grace made, gave me a uh, injected water into my system so I was no longer so brittle. And I think that sense of grace made me be able to deal with, at various moments, face my own sins and shortcomings. Um, and then I, and I think then if someone has that experience, then I think it makes it easier for us to um, forgive others. Um, and it makes it perhaps easier for us to approach someone with the hope that they might forgive us. And perhaps this is all teleological because, I mean, that was an experience of being profoundly loved by God. Um, it can be, I think, that if I have an experience of being profoundly loved by my mother, my lover, by someone, you know, then then I think maybe that sense of being made in God's image and likeness and being delight, being a delight 
to someone perhaps gives me the resilience to be able to ask for, um, seek forgiveness from someone or accept uh, the, have the harm hit on me, but then be able to have the vulnerability to be enter, to enter into a conversation and relationship. Beautiful, John and Michael. Well, I, I think um, Bill would be great for you to respond. You you have expertise in Saint Augustine and how Augustine understands psychology and the the connections between the individual and community. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You're so sweet. I uh, I think that uh, I I think that it's key to have self reconciliation. I think that I think part of the reason why you engage in um, in reconciliation with others is because that's key to your own liberation. Mm -hmm. And, and that was key for Augustine. Um, I do think, you know, I'm reading a, a beautiful book by Margaret Miles, who is a, a, a both a feminist um, a theologian and a fan of Augustine and sees him for all of his uh, gifts and, and flaws as a thinker. And uh, that, that sense of reconciliation is based in feeling and in love. And uh, I think that that's the, uh, and I think a lot of us are quite compartmentalized. We, are, we live with contradictions. Uh, we live with things that are unreconciled within us. It's the nature of being human. And um, that work has got to be resolved in relationship with God, but also with others. And, and so there's a, uh, there's an internal way in which you are loving yourself when you engage in the work of reconciliation. You're seeking your own salvation. And, uh, and I believe that that's, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I like to tease people, and I, I probably shouldn't, but, you know, whenever we do anything bold or great or sacrificial, um, I like to say, you know, I'm in this for selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to know. I loved today when we gave self-sacrificially to this community housing network. That's such a privilege and joy to do that. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? That's so much better than getting a manicure or a pedicure or something. You know what I mean? It's just so much. I feel so good today uh, because I've done something like that. So I think that there's there's a kind of, uh, to, to use this philosophical term, a hedonic calculus to the work of reconciliation. We're doing it to enjoy. John, you want to jump in? Sure. I think, I mean, I, in a way, to reiterate what I said before, which is to agree that I think that there is an intimate connection between the acceptance of self and, the, and reconciliation with others, I think. Um, but I think within that, I'd want to stress that journey. That it's a journey towards reconciliation. We will never achieve a, a complete reconciliation, uh, you know, in this life. Um, I remember years ago, kind of like all preachers doing that, um, love your neighbor as yourself. So you've got to start by loving yourself. And a whole bunch of people, my people said, my church just said, well, we might as well just not bother then, because you know, <laughs> clearly we're just never going to do that. And, and um, so I think that the also to pick up of something that Bishop Bonnie said earlier on, um, the honest naming uh, that needs to go on in reconciliation. So that acceptance of self is not is needs to start with an honest recognition of self. I guess that for me is one of the uncomfortable 
benefits of the Coventry Litany of Reconciliation because it names a whole bunch of areas in which we ourselves have been complicit in the forgiveness that we are seeking from God for all of us. And that's a really profound thing that's going on in that. Um, and it's all about stepping into that universal forgiveness again that God has, uh, has achieved for us in Christ. So we're kind of coming all just keep coming back almost the same thing, really. Let's turn to a couple other things. There are two others that have been raised. Uh, one is by Susie Bai. This is an incredibly uh, interesting question, which is, in America, we use our courts as a public way to have hearing on wrongness, but it is by nature an adversarial construct where one party strate strategically asserts a wrong and the other party strategically denies it. The idea of being individualistic made me think of our way of proceeding to right wrongs. What would it, what, and this kind of points towards the commission model that you're advocating, Bishop, which is that if we did prosecute it like a court case, it's going to force people into positions and it's going to force us into payments that are determined and judged and, and testimonies that are, are questioned. And, and, and it, it seems like that you're aiming towards a commission model. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I I very much think so. Although I thought I thought um, I thought Troy had a super like a super good point about how that how the difference is that we're talking about something. Um, at least the leg at least slavery itself is something that is centuries old. Um, I think the legacy of slavery continues on. And Troy's point, as I read it, was what the South African Commission was doing was something that was within within those people's actual memory. Um, and it wasn't something that they had heard in books. But I guess the piece I would push with that using the commission is that the 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 daily indignities that people of color need to be on guard for um, are continuing now. And so maybe it might work. Yeah, I mean, I, I just to build on that, with, to go to Troy's question, I, I, I mean, in South Africa, there was a bracketing, right? So they picked the Group Areas Act in the early 20th century, and then the, you know, till 1992 as the kind of area in which that they wanted to focus. But of course, there was colonization and um, a horrible uh, behavior before that. And, and um, it was kind of a way of managing something really, really challenging and, and for us the the narrative doesn't hold together as easily because there's slavery but then there's also Jim Crow and then there's also redlining and then there's also bias and each of these almost requires a narrative within itself to try to explain what's going on which is why it can seem to be I sometimes worry that we build up a a, a layered narrative that's so large that none of us can lift it well, which is our own way of avoiding responsibility that's just it, right? If you if you read um, uh, Tanahasi Coates' article, which I took forever to read, because for one thing, friends, it's longer than a New Yorker article. It just goes on and on and on, and it is amazing. But there, it's so layered, which brings us, you know, the big. It's so hard when it keeps getting bigger. Yeah, um, Troy, do you want to jump in? You have your hand up. I apologize for. Thanks, thanks. I, I'd love to. Yeah. So, um, 
I not only teach a class on civil rights, but I also teach American history. And every year I find myself spending more and more time on the Civil War and Reconstruction periods. Yeah. Because, because if there's anything I want my students to take from their study of American history, it's that these questions are still with us, right? Um, in fact, we just asked our students an essay question, you know, was Reconstruction America's second revolution? Well, a lot of the radicals who were pushing for racial justice wanted it to be America's second revolution, right? We could finally extend equal rights to all people. We could finally um, come to terms with the legacy of slavery uh, and, and racism. And the opportunity was lost, right? Within about 15 to 20 years, the rollback of reconstruction had already started. And this, I was just gonna piggyback on, on Father Bill's point because the problem here isn't just that we have multi-layered narratives or that the problem is so immense that we can't reduce it uh, to, to a simple story. We had false narratives uh, that were actively promoted during Reconstruction and which continued for decades and decades afterward in the Dunning School, right? Which a lot of very prominent American historians imbibed. I mean, that became their narrative. Reconstruction wasn't just uh, a failure, it was a mistake. It should never have been attempted, right? Um, and you've got to contend now with that false narrative, which still continues. Uh, it's not as widespread as it might have been 30 or 40 years ago. You know, we've had a whole generation of historians who've been doing really important work in trying to puncture that narrative. But um, yeah, I, I keep coming back to this fact that, you know, this, this historical work is hard. It's hard for historians. And as uh, Bishop Perry was pointing out, it, it's hard for, for ordinary folks, you know, to, to delve into this and to commit themselves to doing the kind of reading and study um and that's where i get a little despairing about this you know um because even in my own students who are very very bright um and very ambitious and motivated it's hard for me to get them to stop and have some sustained reflection on these questions you know um despite the fact that i, I you know i try different strategies every year and and i really stay on this theme maybe sometimes to the point where they you know they kind of lose patience with me it's like okay come on let's move on i don't want to move on because this work is too important, um, but it's but it's a challenge. So anyway, thank you. That's so amazing, Troy. Michael and John, do you want to jump in? Uh, I think Troy's hit the nail on the head, um, and Troy could tell us a whole lot um, more about the vulnerabilities and the history of the U.S. when we actually were doing good and having good narratives around race and then that vulnerability is quickly taken away i mean if you just think about the first africans coming to the united states they weren't slaves they were indentured servants and um because of the the capricious ways that history unfolds and sickness and other kinds of um the the covid 19 of that day um created all kinds of disparities and needs to create laws to enslave African people because they couldn't get the labor and infrastructure together. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Troy's right. You know, it is easy to fall into despair because once we do sort of hit on any kind of uh, hope and we see any kind of display of what appears to be reconciliation and John is right. You you can't force that last stage of the right of reconciliation reunion. You can't force that. It's kind of like the cloud of unknowing. You can't force being one with God, but 
those little glimpses that we get, they just seem to be taken away all the time. So I appreciate the the history and the work and encourage you, Troy, to continue to to get our students. I've got three of them, three teenagers myself, to to get them to pay attention to this. I, I think they're closer to the kingdom, though. I think they're closer to the kingdom. So I'm encouraged by that, by the way that they are seeing reality and their sense of critique. John. Yeah, I mean, just really briefly, I guess, I think the truth telling always has to be incredibly important. And it's so hard to do that, isn't it? Because you, you dig down and down and down. Um, so from my point of view, I, I listen to narratives coming to here from the States and I go, how can you say that? Look at, I mean, you know, 50 years ago, look, was, look what was happening. Uh, and I kind of go, gosh, that makes no sense. And then you kind of roll back again and look at what the Brits do. And I remember years ago, I, we walked the Inca Trail and, um, and I thought, gosh, how difficult must it be for the, you know, my history is letting me down here for a second, but um, how difficult must it be for when you're taking Spanish or Portuguese um, tourists on the Inca Trail? You know, that must be so difficult given the history of what those people did in your country. And this guy turned to me and she said, well, at least it wasn't the English. And I went, oh, my gosh. And I've never quite recovered from that. And similar experiences, you know, I went to India and I felt like walking around with a big sign around my neck that said sorry. And um, so but I think that somehow getting digging into the truth has to be the beginning of turning into something where we discover a, a, a trail towards forgiveness and reconciliation. I think that's great. And I do want to, I want to say one thing as a, a noting uh, that John brought up the Gacacha courts of uh, Rwanda, uh, which in the 90s um, did a different kind of justice in which was more community-based uh, justice. It was more um, uh, what we would have been practiced in alternative, it's called, uh, believe it or not, uh, the, the original point of it is family group con conferences where it's the whole family is there and the and the offending um, family members as well as the wider community. And there was an, a negotiation about how to reconcile. And then of course, there were also other courts in Uganda that we'd actually brought back traditional practices of the scapegoat that had that is used for, for uh, intertribal disputes uh, where a goat receives the sins of the, of the perpetrator and then the goat is ceremoniously killed, not a good outcome for the goat, but a good outcome for the community. And then everybody um, drinks the blood of the goat, uh, which is uh, actually not that unusual for us who read the Bible. Uh, the scapegoating uh, that was done by the Jews is very, very similar. Um, so there's different things to explore with narrative and ritual and, um, and maybe to keep in mind that Whatever we try to do with this incredible um, initiative that the bishop is starting, um, that maybe we we don't want to see a report as its outcome. Maybe maybe this needs to be something that creates a process. You know what I'm saying? Because like the, the problem is is we're the pressure you're going to have as a oh, as yeah. a you know. Kingdom of God is going to be delivered with a report. Absolutely, yes. maybe even PowerPoint. Here it is. It's going to be so good that the bishops are going to love it. It's going to be, you know, I just think, but it's true. I mean, this is what happens again and again. And um, it's very funny. Uh, when I was in Canada, 
uh, one bishop explained the differences in the Anglican community. He says, the British tend to like reports, uh, the Americans like processes, and then the Canadian bishops like pints. And so they, <laughs> the Canadians want to immediately just go out and get to know one another. And I, I think that was deep truth. Uh, but anyways, uh, a little off topic. I want to go to a couple of things that are really key that Katie Allen and, and Garrett Careful uh, brought up. I don't know if Katie, Katie had to jump off. That's unfortunate. I understand. Uh, but it's just a, just stepping back. And I maybe it's good that we finish here for today is, you know, how do you, how do you address the situation when the offended party is not receptive for, to forgiveness? How do you, how do you, you know, one of the things that Katie said so beautifully um, is that, you know, uh, she's been troubled by her tendency not to forgive. I get the feeling righteous when it, that it's not my hurt to forgive, it's up to God to forgive. I'm concerned that that's a cop out. So uh, I guess this is a, uh, a moment and ask just to step back and to talk more immediately about that bit of forgiveness and then we'll, we'll move to, to close. Mm -hmm. First, I, I think that we should all take a huge breath. It, it should take our breath away actually when someone has been wronged and they want to enter into a conversation, right? It's, it's, it's stunning, isn't it? It's just stunning. And, and so, there, so first to celebrate the grace when anyone does that. And, and then I think, um, I think that if there is not anyone who wants to participate in that, I think then we also need to do our reconciliation with God. And, and that and there and that we need to have an amendment and I'll just talk about myself, I would need to have an amendment of life, I would need to confess my sins to God. Um, and, um, and I like to do that with, um, with a priest, because um, I like to see someone hold, I, it's super helpful for me to hear myself say it to them and then to see the look in their eyes and then to have conversation and to confess those sins. And then for, for me to um, make restitution, for me to do penance, for me to figure out how I'm going to amend my ways. And, and that change, that transformation can happen um, in that right, that sacrament without another person taking part without the offending party. So I think that's at least a place to start acknowledging my guilt, um, yeah. create me a clean heart, oh God, renew a right spirit within me. Other Beautiful. I think we're gonna stop there. I wanna thank uh, John, thank you so much for coming back, particularly on your day off. It's been such a joy to have you. You're welcome to come back next week. You promised only two weeks. You, I will, we could talk during the week but it's a blessing to have you and your perspective. So thank you for doing that. And then Michael, thank you so much for being with us. And you've been so faithful as our, our theologian in residence. Uh, it's truly moving to me and touching to have the chance to be together again. Uh, I feel like we're finally starting to have the conversations that you and I started when we were 22, 24 years old. And so thank you so much for, for being here. And we're, you're gonna be on next week and be, be presenting. So thank you for, for being part of this. And then Bishop, 
Really, thank you. This is such an important conversation. Um, and, I, and I know not everybody had um, a chance to say or ask their question. We're gonna be keeping a track of those. Mark Robinson, I know you had something brilliant to say as you always do. And um, so, uh, but we're gonna just continue to move along. And, um, and if, if we could have Chris and Michael um, lead the litany of reconciliation and Bishop, if there's a time to if blessing in there, I can't remember the exact liturgy uh, itself, but you'll if you see a part, we'll just kind of just jump right in. You, you, you'll know when to do it. And, I'm, uh, I'm so. happy to do that. And I also, Bill, I want to thank you. Uh, I am I am someone who works to deadlines, and I had been wanting to craft something on this, and knew I needed to. And by you know by heaven, this was a super helpful. Um, they were super helpful for me. So thank you very much for the opportunity. And, and John and Michael, thank you. Thank you so very much. And all of you, gosh, I mean, you've been at, oh, goody, another Zoom call. So please, my, my thanks to you for um, being part of this. I really appreciate it. Okay, friends, here is the closing litany. Are you ready, Michael? Yes, yeah, so uh, am I the efficient? I'll be the efficient, you can be the people, and then you're gonna have two uh, selections on readings. Sounds good. Oh God, make peace, make speed to save us. Oh Lord, oh make, Lord haste make haste to help us. Glory to the Father. To the Father and to the Son and, and, and to, to the Holy Spirit. As, as it, was. it was in the beginning, is, is now, now will and be. will be forever. Amen. And you can just select one of the Psalms to read. So let's stay with the portion of Psalm 85. You have been. You have been gracious you, to uh, your land, O Lord. You have restored the good fortune of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people and blotted out all their sins. Restore us then, O God, our Savior. Let your anger depart from us. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord is saying, for he is speaking peace to his faithful people. And to those who turn their hearts to him. Glory to the Father, Father and to the Son, to the Son and to the Holy, and Spirit, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning. In the beginning is now, is now and will be forever. Will be forever. Amen. Amen. And if you want to pick one of the readings and read that one. God proves his love for us and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely than now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us confess to God the sins and shortcomings of the world, its pride, its selfishness, its greed, its evil divisions and hatreds. Let us confess our share in what is wrong and our failure to seek and establish the peace which God wills for his children. The hatred which divide nations from nation, race from race, class from class. Father, forgive. The covenant desires of people and nations to possess what is not their own. Father, forgive. The greed which exploits the work of human hands and lays waste the earth. Father, forgive our envy of the welfare and happiness of others. Father, forgive. Our indifference to the plight of the imprisoned, the homeless, the refugee. Father, forgive. The lust which dishonors the bodies of men, women, and children. Father, forgive. The pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God. Father, forgive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Do you want to offer the final collect, Bishop, and any other words? Sure, thank you. God of unbounded grace, you declare the power of your reconciling love and the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Teach us who live only in your forgiveness to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. Heal our divisions, cast out our fears through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit be with you this day and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Mend what is broken. Unite what is divided. Live the gospel. In the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. I just wanted to let uh, Carolyn Russell, who's wonderful and who's here today, uh, we tend to have everybody else mute when we do the prayers. That's just the fruit of experience with us. We do morning prayer uh, every day at 8.30. Um, it's wonderful. We also will have an even, uh, evening prayer and even song tonight. 
So feel free to join us for that. But when we do, we usually have one person who responds and one person who speaks. And please know we, we are so blessed to have you with us and each of you with us. Thank you all for being here. Bishop, we're gonna start at 11.35. Uh, so you'll have five minutes to take a breath. And Rob Kerrigan, could you let everybody else on the vestry know that we're gonna start officially at 11.35 uh, so that Bishop has a break. And Thank am I you. on the same link, Bill, or is there- No, it's a different link. So I'll make sure you get onto that. Right, and thanks, okay. Chris, for sending this one. And Manisha, thanks for everything. I really appreciate it. Great, see you soon. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christ Church Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristChurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christ Church Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.